two. By way of brief agenda here, we're going to do a quick segment that we've entitled Story Acknowledgements, where we're just going to go around the horn and, and acknowledge something that's happened in the last uh, week or you know, maybe even today. Uh, probably won't analyze them for too long. We want to get right into our first uh, real segment, which is a soapbox brought to you by Cove. I'll let him introduce that later. We'll analyze that, the three of us, for about 10 minutes following Cove Soapbox. And the second half, the, the main event of tonight, is discussing gun control in the wake of Las Vegas. And very sensitive topic there that uh, I think we can have a, a really good discussion. Um, and we'll, we'll get there in about 25 minutes. So a quick recap from our last episode. We got into the nitty gritty of uh, why now? Why this podcast? Why are we talking about this? Why are we sitting around a circle and discussing these public policy issues and how they affect business? And Harold had a, a, a metaphor where we, we talked about the, the variance of be, being within the you know, standard deviation or variance of the, the norms on in an institution. And we isolated that to an academic institution in particular. It was an interesting conversation. I encourage all of you to go back and, and kind of revisit why we feel this is important for, for the three of us to, to be discussing and, and having guests in here and, and really increasing everyone's knowledge and awareness of issues that are going on as far as public policy and how they affect uh, a business going forward. Again, I'm Jake Schneiders. I'm kind of the host. I'm, I'm watching this, uh, this beating pulse of, of lyric coming across GarageBand here. A little shout out to GarageBand. Um, and we have, <laughs> we have Harold sitting to my left and, and Alex Kovacevic to my right. Anything you want to add about, like, by way of recap from last week? I don't think so. I, I think, A, if you haven't listened to that, First episode, go go back and listen to that. It's a really good intro to a little bit of who we are and, and, and why we feel this is pertinent to, to today's conversation. But I, th- I think the feeling of that deviation from what is acceptable to talk about, especially in an academic community, the feeling that that is n- getting ever narrower around the norm um, is something that we definitely want to challenge when we think that that academia and, and really any open forum for debate should encourage a, a plurality of views and encourage everybody's voice to be heard. Um, the more dogmatic or the more narrow what's acceptable to be said is, then we're losing something in, in, in just learning from each other and from listening to each other. Yeah, well, no, the well, uh, well said. So why don't we move into story acknowledgements. We'll kind of see how this goes. I think it's interesting uh, because we have very specific topics that we want to talk about in the regular agenda, but I think it, it's just good that we at least talk about things that, uh, that are happening on the periphery, even though we might not analyze them. Uh, today was a, a very um, – actually, you know what? I'll throw it to Co first. So this is, uh, this is a little bit kind of uh, left field for, for this podcast, but it's – a story I saw today that that really made me very happy. That uh, one of my countrymen, novelist Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, won the 2017 Nobel Prize in Literature. Uh, if you haven't read his 
novel, The Remains of the Day, I would strongly encourage it. It's one of my favorite books of all time. Um, definitely, definitely go and read that. It's 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 very profound, very moving. This is a, a, a really great author who, and a, and a long overdue award, and congratulations to him. Excellent. Your own countryman. <laughs> um, I have a different story completely. In a 2019, 2006, or sorry, in a 219 to a 206 vote in the House, the fiscal year 2018 budget was passed. No Democrats, no Democrats supported the resolution, uh, but it, the budget did contain 1.1 trillion in non-entitlement spending, including nearly 622 billion on defense. Um, I actually think the biggest piece of this story is that by passing a budget resolution. Uh, through both GOP-controlled chambers, Republicans would trigger a legislative process known as reconciliation, during which they could pass a sweeping tax reform bill with a simple majority of 51 votes in the Senate instead of the usual 60. So Interesting. that happened today. Uh, more to come on that. I think we're going to do a full episode on tax policy going forward. We'll get some guests and some real uh, heavy hitters in the industry to, to analyze that. But that's kind of a tee up for a future episode and that happened today yeah we'll definitely talk about tax later on I think it's going to be a really critical issue going forward not just for this year next year but really I think that, like it's one of those policies that cuts to the heart of an ideological divide between big government small government kind of personal freedoms versus group rights I think that, you know it's it really is at the intersection of all those things so um, that'll be a good show Great. Um, so wanted to just to quickly talk about, I know it's all, all over the news, uh, but kind of bringing a little bit of foreign policy, uh, briefly kind of touch on the Iran nuclear deal. Um, let's see kind of what happens here, but it does definitely suggest that, that uh, President Trump is going to decertify the international nuclear deal with Iran um, in the spirit of what he's calling uh, a national interest. Um, so we'll see if, if, if this comes to play as well as see what kind of the Congress does as it, as it will openly um, obviously kind of be up to them. Um, personally speaking, I think this is a play um, that creates an opportunity, um, at least from Trump's perspective, to uh, impose sanctions back on uh, back on I I Iran. So anyway, just uh, a, a tidbit on you know, s things that we're going to be talking about, which includes foreign foreign policy. Yeah, and that might be a, the time of discussion for next week, too. I think he's going to officially announce that next week. So more details to come there. All right, Cove, the moment we've all been waiting for. Here we go, <laughs> Cove. Something, something Here that we go. you feel very deeply passionate about. Do, yeah. you wanna, do you have a title for the soapbox? So this is The Insanity of Tech Valuations. Okay, and hang um, on, I'm starting a timer because <laughs> I, I, I can I can talk for some time <laughs> I know, on this. I know. So this is this is very close to my heart. This topic. So, <laughs> all right, ready, go. Okay, so the general theory is that companies that are in some way associated with new technology are vastly, vastly overvalued by the stock market to the point that it essentially becomes and should almost be criminal. It is by the broadest definition of the word, a fraud in or a Ponzi scheme where the people who are first in, the price just rises and rises until it doesn't anymore. It's a classic bubble. It has to burst eventually. And 
there are guys out there getting phenomenally wealthy by losing other people's money. And we'll take a, I'll give you the, kind of the, the, the darling of this at the moment is Tesla. Tesla has a market valuation of $59.3 billion. This is a company that's never, ever turned a profit. Last year, it lost $674 million. The year before, it lost $888 million. 2014, it lost $294 million. It has negative retained earnings. Retained losses over the history of this company top $3 billion. So in the process of losing $3 billion of other people's money, they've somehow been valued at $59 billion. This is a company, let me remind you, that sells give or take 60,000 cars a year and is worth nearly as much as GM, whose market cap is $63 billion, who made a profit of $10 billion the last two years in a row, sells 10 million cars a year annually and has retained earnings of $26 billion. These companies couldn't look any different on their balance sheet and on their income statement. Uh, one is a business, like a real business. If you go to Milton Friedman's famous say, phrase, the business of business is business. It's to, it's to make money. Um, Tesla does not make money. GM does, and yet they have a similar market valuation. And this is, this is, this is rife throughout, um, throughout the, the, the industry. Twitter, I'll give you a good example. $13.4 billion valuation. Total re negative retained earnings, $2.5 billion. Snapchat, $17.3 billion retained earnings of, of negative retained earnings of 1.2 billion. Box, 2.5 billion valuation, retained, uh, negative retained earnings of $884 million. These companies have never ever turned a profit and are valued in the billions of dollars. Have, and they're not even, so they're, they, you can't even calculate a price to earnings ratio because they don't have any earnings, they, they lose money. Even flipping it, you look at other tech firms that do make money, and their price to earnings ratios are 53 for PayPal, 38 for Facebook, 35 for Google, against GM 7.6. IBM made $13 billion of profit last year, 12. Delta made $4 billion profit last year, 10.2. These are outrageously high uh, valuations for companies just because they have some peripheral association with technology. And it's, 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 it's a bubble, it's gonna burst. There's going to be bad repercussions for the economy when it does, and people really need to get a get a hang on this. And the entrepreneurs, if you want to call them that, who've made businesses that do nothing but lose money and have made themselves very wealthy in the process, someone needs to hold those guys to account for ste essentially stealing investors' money, screwing it into their own pockets, and creating nothing of value in return. That was 3.30. You have another minute and a half if you want to rant. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm good. Let's, I gotta, let's we got we to get to these questions. I'm 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 ready. I'm ready. Yeah. Right, Do it. Them. Yeah. Um. So you know, COVID was uh, you know interesting as you went through the the the, the company's uh, valuations and where they're at from a retained earnings perspective. Let me ask you this: um, Why do you think they have that type of evalu valuation? So legitimately, I don't think it's a, a valuation. I don't think the people who are buying a share for, you know, a, a Tesla share for 350 bucks genuinely believe that the, the, te the value of the Tesla company is at nearly $60 billion. I think they feel that in the next six months, there's going to be another idiot out there who'll pay $400 for a share. And they'll pay 400 because they feel that in six months down the line, there'll be an idiot who pays 450 I think it's, they're just looking at the increase in share price and the return on investment is purely 
share price. It's like diamonds or gold or any other commodity that has no real value other than the fact that it's relatively scarce and other people think it has value. Sure. And you would put, you're going down the different list of uh, tech companies. I mean, you put Uber in the same. I, Uber's yeah. not a public company, but right. but, uh, sure. but, uh, but definitely. And Uber, they say now has a $70 billion valuation for a company that yeah, lost $2 billion right, right, last right, year. Right, right, right. And most and most worryingly for Uber is they have a, a business model where the price they get in for a, for a good, they're the cost they charge to a rider, is only 41% 41% of, of yeah, the, the fare. Cost. Yeah, the, yeah. the cost. Are so sure. their business model is completely upside down. They sell sure. services at a 60% loss. So let me then ask this, right? Because this is kind of what I'm getting to. I I follow you on, okay, maybe there's, as you're saying, kind of an, an idiot, to use your terms, that wants to pay, you know, Twenty dollars for a share, believing that some other idiot's going to pay forty dollars for a share. I get that. Where I want to go though is monetization. When you look at creative marketing, front end marketing opportunities. So we talk about data, right? Data being the new uh, oil, right? And you know, you we can we can we can debate that. And I'm not saying. Uh, you know, I want to avoid kind of coming right now with a strong argument. I just want to lay that out there. Do you think that these investors in institutions see it as an opportunity down the road to use data in creative ways, i.e. front-end marketing, that can create uh, revenue, not, not only big revenue, but ultimately make these companies like profitable if you are in, under the assumption that data is the next like oil so I, I i think if they do believe that i think they're deeply mistaken in that data is now so cheap data is everywhere the way we interact with so many different sites so many different retail environments so many different companies online we create a digital footprint for ourselves that is so massive that one piece of data for one company one uber one is actually is, it actually becomes worthless. But is it though, right? Google, for example, right? You don't have the data links to Google, and they hold endless amounts of data, correct? They do, but that data isn't actually hugely valuable. The value of, of Google is, you know, the, the vast sum of their revenue is selling search advertising, and that hasn't changed. That doesn't change depending on how much data you have. They have on you. It, it, it's based purely on what you're searching for. Could that data be used though? in um, adjacent or um, alternative markets that can be used to create new technologies or new products that then can then create like revenue? I don't see how you could ever get this scale of money back. And there's, I, I, I don't dispute there will be some value in data and Facebook has probably done the best of monetizing consumer segmentation and consumer profiling to this point with advertising and Facebook advertising is now pretty expensive and they charge a premium for it because of how targeted it can be and because the click through rates they generate are higher than they would otherwise be if you weren't going to if you weren't so targeted but with the emergence of remarketing with the emergence of ad blockers on so many devices there's just no way it's you're talking about trying to recoup billions of dollars of value through a mechanism that's going to earn 
hundreds of thousands, maybe a few million at, at the most. So what it's do you not it's yeah. not commensurate with the size of that opportunity is not commensurate with the size of the valuation. So then what do you say about like customer user kind of acquisition, right? Like let's take um Let's take uh, Venmo, like for example, right? All these millennials, right, are using like Venmo. It's it's a it's a social um, it's a social kind of environment, right? Where we can do transactions and right pay each other yeah. uh, for you know go to a bar, go to a restaurant, wherever it may be. You know, there's been no advertising right now through like Uber. Obviously, you can monetize through advertising, but do you think by Venmo growing in a getting more and more users at some point down the road basically what you're saying is that doesn't really do you any good or at least it doesn't it doesn't justify the high valuation and I, and I think we're seeing that with uber where their whole business model was based on get users get customers dominate the market and then we can raise prices and they've seen that they aren't able to raise prices because the it's so cheap to copy and to replicate the service that the next competition and the next competition is going to come along and those customers, especially millennial customers who are not super brand loyal, not like, you know, if you look at baby boomers, they're on average 20% more brand loyal than millennials. And every generation is less and less brand loyal. So you're coming to the point where that customer, the cost of acquiring that customer actually doesn't pay off in the long run because the next competition comes along, the next thing comes along and you lose that customer fairly quickly if you raise prices, if you try and advertise them, if you try and charge them for a service that they're used to, used to getting for free. And talking about Venmo, Venmo's a really good example. Venmo's owned by PayPal. Mm -hmm. PayPal uh, is has one of the highest PDE ratios out there of like 53. They had made a, they make a profit. They made a profit of $1.2 billion sure, dollars sure, last sure, year. Sure. I'll give you a, a kind of a good comparison of that. What This is where they think that Facebook is going to take WhatsApp. So Facebook acquired WhatsApp last year for $22 billion. In order for WhatsApp to be worth that, if it goes into this money transfer space, which is what they're talking about, it would need to have uh, earnings half the size of PayPal, who've been doing this for 20 or 15, 20 years, the biggest in the business. They would have to quickly scale up to be 50% of the size of PayPal for that valuation to be worth, for Facebook to be for WhatsApp to be worth that valuation to Facebook, through earnings from money transactions, and I just don't see that as plausible. Yeah, I think where I, you know, I, I track everything you're you're, you're saying. Uh, I think where I, um, maybe disagree or at least would want to uh, kind of push back against is this idea of data yes it's everywhere but can data really be acquired at ease by anyone like in everyone and therefore is data truly you know valuable which from my perspective it does seem that um I, you know i would i would suggest it is even when you mentioned um i think you mentioned gm um you know maybe it's kind of going off into another topic but gm isn't just thinking like an industrial manufacturing like automotive company they're thinking okay, like we're going to be a technology like company that's going to use like our, our product, which is a vehicle to ultimately provide a better user experience, which means partnering with the likes of different te technology companies or even becoming a technology company that is able to take data and use data to ultimately like improve, um, 
you know, not only the product, but the the users kind of experience, even when you look at like autonomous driving and like things like that, which requires like a lot of data. Is that? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I, we're going to see where this where yep. this goes, and, and obviously neither of us know for certain what this is going to look like. My instinct is that your instinct is a bubble, right, and that is going to certainly. But it, but in terms of the value of data, I sure. think companies are going to be able to get that data with greater and greater ease on their customers. And in the end, that data isn't doesn't have a value in itself. The value of that data is being able to target advertising to get customers to buy something else. Data isn't a a product that has data, inherent data value in itself. It is something is a tool to to drive other sales. Right. So it the, the it value of that it can be different than just advertising there. So I think the value of the value that's going to come out of the data space are the companies that figure out how to use it in the most effective way and then sell that knowledge sure, of how to use I agree that. With that. The raw data, the collection of, of this kind of big of data. There's a lot of work in that though. There like is a, there the is analytics, the big data, IoT, like being able to take that big data mm -hmm. and be able to cut it in a way that gets people to certain insights that can be used to improve their existing products and as well as enter into other markets. I mean, look at, I'm thinking about Siemens, GE, they're not just building gas turbines, steam turbines, wind turbines, all these different things. They're looking at ways of extracting the data, getting insights to make cities, to make homes, yeah. to make but consider, more smart. So, but consider the, it's not the Ubers and the Snapchats and the Twitters of this world, or the Teslas of this world that are doing that with the data. So if the argument for these valuations is that they're collecting a whole ton of data, that's not where the value is. The value, if, if Uber suddenly becomes a data analysis company, then maybe there's some value in that. I don't think there's this much value in there. But there's there's value in the skills and the understanding of how to, how to m use and monetize big data. But that's not what these companies are doing. They're just collecting it. I, I want to take this and a slightly different direction and I'll start with an anecdote in 2010 I tried to start a collaborative network software company online everyone was doing networks back then this one I thought was gonna be different it's gonna you know turnkey solution people would just come flocking to it and of course my marketing naivety got the best of me but my plan my plan had some way to uh, a few different ways you know i had to go to investors and stuff so i had a few ways that i planned to monetize this but a lot of it the conversation back then in 2010 was get users and monetize later and i'm curious because i'm i'm looking up you know as we're talking here like snapchat snapchat was hardly monetized when they went public but of course you know going public is for the most part a capital raising and objective right so yeah. just to raise money for future growth they're trading at $14 and 50 cents a share today and 52 week from $11 up to 30 ish but do you think the where I'm going with this do you think the days of a company valuation based on zero dollars in the door just user acquisition do you think those days are over I don't think they're over yet I think they will be soon I think that's the bubble that's going to burst. Is yeah. a user is not a dollar, right. and that and and that's uh, a fallacy that's been around for too long now. And I think we're starting to see that. I and mean, you see with Twitter, that's been running eleven years now, has never made a profit. There comes a tipping point where 
investors see that a company's been running for a long time and still can't make money, yeah. and, it, and it goes on its head. So Twitter IPO'd at $41. It's now trading at 15 Yeah, I'm in that um, one. That sucks. And is, and is you know, tanking pretty much. You know, is, yeah. is, is losing value every day. So there is a point where investors understand. You go back to the traditional argument of evaluation is just the net present value of all future earnings. There comes a point at which the history just shows that there will there never no be earnings from this, yeah, <laughs> from this company. But then um, you look at you look at a success story like Facebook. I mean, they opened that debacle on Nasdaq. They opened at thirty three dollars a share, went down to yeah. twenty seven. You know, little capital infusion for the first couple of days, and that now they're trading at one seventy one. And, and and they were monetized. I mean, very late, very late. But, I think but the thing with and there's always there's always the chance there's going to be some kind of sea change, so, something that changes the dynamic of the market that that enables a company that's pre- been previously unprofitable to be profitable. Yeah. And with Facebook, that was smartphones. No one ever clicked. I, I remember I, 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 was a, I was buying advertising back in the days when there was no smartphone before the first iPhone came out. And people were trying to sell me Facebook advertising. And the click-through rate was horrendous. And Facebook advertising on the desktop, which is how you access Facebook back then, on like a, a laptop or a desktop screen, was super cheap and no one clicked on it because it was just noise on the side. No one was using Facebook for that purpose. They wanted to see their friends' photos. They wanted to be social. Being advertised to was not part of how they used Facebook. Smartphones and the news feed changed all of that. Mm. And the fact that now adverts appear very naturally on your news feed, they're very much more clickable. You can go straight back to the news feed when you're done looking at them. Click-through rates have now skyrocketed. But it wasn't anything that Facebook did differently. It was a technological jump that completely revolutionized how Facebook delivered adverts to the consumer and made those ad- made that advertising significantly more valuable to companies who want to advertise. Yeah. That and you can't, you know, that type of change is always possible. But if you're basing a valuation of a company on some type of step change in the way people interact with that company, based on some potential future technology breakthrough, that doesn't seem like a particularly robust way to value future earnings to me. Yeah. Well, I'll do a, a quick plug to PitchBook Data where I worked for two years. I'm on their website right now. 2006, I'm looking at tech investments, venture investments, total venture investments in tech. 2006, there are 2,800 deals, just shy of $20 billion in that year. And I'll kind of, I'll step, I don't have to go year by year, but 2011, it jumped a little bit. Uh, 33 billion, 7,800 deals. 2014, 69 billion, 18,000 deals. 2015, we're nearing 100 billion dollars in both 2015 and 16. Uh, we're three quarters of the way through 2017, and we're on our way there. There's no sign of slowing in this space. No sign of slowing at all. There isn't, and that that's one other reason why people should be worried. Because while investment in this space is ramping up, returns on investment in the venture space have been poor yep. by comparison to any other real, really asset class in the last 10 years. And so you plug together poor returns, increasing capital still coming into the market, and you end up with just a lot of capital being thrown at bad companies. So are you seeing a bubble like, you know, housing bubble of... Of our recent past, or you, what kind of? I, th- I think at I what think at what scale? Risk, this is, I think this this could be more like the dot com bubble of the early two thousands. I think it'll have a, a big economic impact on 
just the value of people's savings, the value of people's retirement funds. What you won't see is people's like people's real assets, like housing assets, depreciating value, depreciating value. In you won't see people stuck yeah. in mortgages because their house is worth sixty percent of what it was and they took out their mortgage. Let's so do so let's do a final question. Well, I I think where I'm kind of getting at too is when you think of the digital space, right? As so many companies are thinking digitally, thinking like science kind of technology companies, is this connected or no? This piece of you know, because it, it when in, at when end you see okay, like every company is having to think more like a software technology kind of digital company, right? Yeah. Right, and then you have you're kind of saying okay, like this tech space, right, is not able to monetize, and therefore they're overvalued. Therefore, we're we're witnessing a bubble. But the trend is moving towards, at least it, it appears that all companies are thinking more digitally, which is like big data, IoT, like all these different kind of things. How how would you speak to that? So, so I would say, I don't think there's any question that new technology has to be embraced by every single company. My issue is with the valuations of companies that don't add value sure. beyond that. Sure. So your GMs, your like, the big companies who are looking to become more integrated into modern technology, more digitally aware, with more use of big data, that's the way those companies should go. That's the natural evolution of profitable, successful companies. What I'm really talking about is startups who don't really produce anything, sure. having huge and, and don't make any money. You know, these are companies that you're talking about. These larger companies, these GEs, these GMs, these are hugely profitable companies that are adjusting to changing technology, to changing times, as they should. What I'm talking about is too much capital being plowed into an asset class and specifically a sector that does not produce profits. Sure and therefore cannot sustain that type of investment. I think we'll leave it there. Uh, very interesting. I actually really like that segment. I'm going to come up with some topic that I feel <laughs> just as strongly, <laughs> just as passionate about, and just ramble for a couple minutes, and then I've, I thought that was very interesting. And I think I think we should say, guys, these this is meant to be interactive, so yeah. write in, contact us if you feel strongly, uh, especially if you feel strongly the other way. You want to hear from all you... Uh, you tech pioneers out there who are who are keen to to continue the debate. Maybe we got Elon Musk on here. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> um, we're gonna shift gears completely, and it's not it's it, it's a hard topic, especially in the wake of the Las Vegas tragedy on Sunday, where a deranged, sick individual, Stephen Paddock, opened fire on a country concert from the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay, killing 59 and wounding over 500. We saw it fitting as a crew here to discuss gun control. But I I want to first say, you know, deepest condolences to the families of the victims, and, and we certainly don't want to make light of this event in any sort of political way. But, of course, when the dust starts to settle after such an event like this, I think it's natural to discuss what could have been done to prevent it and part of that conversation always leads to talking about gun control. Um, so, you know. Yeah, so obviously our, our thoughts and prayers and our condolences to the victims, the wounded victims whose lives have been changed forever, the families of, of those who died. It's, it's, it's an unspeakable tragedy and an, an unspeakable horror that, that happened in Las Vegas. And... There has to be some conversation. The conversation can't end 
in my opinion, with thoughts and prayers and condolences. It, that in a in a society where we have to try and address difficult issues head on, that cannot be the response every time. And and I think the saddest thing about looking at this event is we know it's going to happen again. There, there is zero chance that this will not happen again, and, and the odds say pretty soon. Since September 2011, there have been there's been a mass shooting like this, and the FBI classifies mass shooting as four or more victims in a public space who are not related to gangs or drugs and are not related to each other by kind of terms like a family. There have been one of these every 64 days wow. in the U.S. since the end of 2011. That's crazy. So, it so this will happen again. And the, the unfortunate thing is, so I grew up in Denver, and I remember exactly where I was at, at Trails Village Elementary School when Columbine happened. I mean, it I remember the day like yesterday. Yeah, and and you know, it that was a huge wake up call. Of course, I was in fourth grade, so for me, it was kind of it was um, I didn't know what to think of it uh, because at that age, you just don't know. There, it's so confusing. I think, um, but today, I mean, those stats, Cove, every sixty four days, there's a mass shooting and on average. And it's just kicked the kick the can down the road continuously about gun control. Now, I have uh, we're going to get into this uh, pretty thoroughly here, and you know, I think so. Let let's talk for a second about a quick win. Bump stocks. For for those of you who are not aware, it's been all over the the news. So, uh, just briefly, a bump stock replaces a rifle's standard stock, which is the part held against the shoulder. Freeze the weapon to slide back and forth rapidly. Um, it, it essentially takes the energy from the kickback that a shooter feels to help fire the weapon uh, continuously. And it actually, I mean, it increases, where is this? Uh, 49, oh, here it is. So increasing the rate to fire continuously between 45 and 60 rounds per minute to between 400 and 800 rounds per minute. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it, these things are staggering. And you you look at, in 2010, they really hit, um, they hit Congress for the first time. It, they weren't, you know, shut down or anything. They hit the market. In fact, what's really scary is that gun dealerships today are, like, sold out of them. Yeah, I saw Because that. they're going to, yeah. the quick win, uh, let's go back to the quick win. The quick win is just getting rid of these things because, People should really not have the ability to make a semi-automatic weapon into essentially an automatic weapon, in my opinion. Well, that's that's one of the, uh, and there's so many different tangents we, we can go go on this, but look, uh, you know, um, the, the kind of to Jake's point, there are so many these guns by nature, right? Um, it's pretty easy, right, to buy different components and to make them into, you know, assault weapons. Um, you know, different kind of bells and whistles that can be applied to, um, to, to, to the gun. So I think that's important to, to for for people to under understand. Yeah, and I think one of the things we're gonna 
touch on here and, and, and really has to be at the center of of this debate is what it, what is a what is a gun in the hands of a civilian for? What is the why why does a civilian in the United States today want need to be to be armed? And what is the right weapon that services that need? And I think if we don't if we don't start with the what are we trying to address here? What is the need that we're trying to address with gun ownership in, in the United States? Then we're going to go around in circles because there's always going to be people who say we need it because an armed citizenry is the bulwark against tyranny. Or people are going to say, well, we like hunting and we like going into the woods and shooting elk. You know, why, why wouldn't you? Mm. you know, so unless we figure out what it is that... What objective are we trying yeah, to... exactly. What objective are we trying to fulfill with gun ownership in the because in the a lot of it seems pretty reactionary right after a, sure. a, a mass shooting yeah. there's you know is when this kind of comes to the table right and yeah. then it goes quiet for a while then it comes back up and, th- and there are well, genuinely every, every 64 days it comes right back yeah, up. Yeah. yeah yeah sure and there, and there are genuinely legitimate reasons why so people I, should have so a gun so let's can talk I, let's talk yeah. historically for a second because uh, there are probably a lot of things in our bill of rights and the constitution on which we were founded that could potentially be outdated today one of them, um, you know, the right to bear arms is is a fundamental right of every U.S. citizen. And w- in that vein, the right to own a gun is essentially a fundamental right of every U.S. citizen. Now, we've applied background checks at retailers. Um, I'd love to talk about the loopholes that, you know, that exist therein. But fast forward a couple hundred years now, and... Maybe maybe there should be restrictions on who has guns today, but in the w- after the Aurora shooting a couple years ago at the in the movie theater, I my first reaction was to go get my concealed carry permit, and so I I bought a pistol, uh, Kimber forty five, and I have the right to conceal that now. Um, I went through the proper channels. I you know I'm an educated gun owner. And I think that's probably what the founders had in mind, you know, people that respect a, a gun for what it is and what it can do. Um, but my feeling is I want to own that and I want to carry it a couple days a week concealed. No one will even know that I have it. But if I happen to be in a situation where I can, I don't need to be the hero of the day, but if I can stop someone from opening fire on a movie theater, I'm going to you know, damn well try. Yeah. And that's one of, I would say, kind of the, the three big reasons why people who want to own a gun is, is self-defense. And in a country where there are almost as many guns as people, that's a very legitimate concern for everyday folks. That I want a gun because there are bad guys out there who have guns, and the only way I'm going to be able to stop them, I'm not going to be completely at their mercy should one of them decide to open fire in a movie theater or open fire in a school or wherever, is if I have a gun. The And that makes a lot of sense until you realize that 75% of all guns used in mass shootings are obtained completely legally through exactly the channels that you went through, Jake. And the people who buy those guns don't look or sound or feel any different to you. And they are different because they go on and do horrific, unspeakably evil things. But to weed out them 
and to stop them from having these weapons of, of murder might also mean stopping you from owning a gun. And and I just don't I I don't think I can concede to that. I don't you know. I let me let me kind of going back to the question that was proposed by po by Cove around kind of what is the objective because that kind of starts getting us to the point of okay like how are we going to really address this or what area are we going to touch on? Let me just kind of go over a couple big uh, kind of stats. The last major gun control gun control leg legislation passed by the U.S. Congress was in 1994 around the assault, the assault weapons ban. Um, you know, there was a 10-year sunrise clause, so it expired in 2004. The ban is widely seen as having failed to make a dent in gun deaths in the United States, where more than 30,000 people are killed with guns each and every year. Of that 30,000, 20,000 or more are from... Um, from from suicide rifles including assault weapons are used only in 3.5 percent of gun murders annually and that's from statistics provided by the fbi yeah so, so and, and uh, so i have yeah. a couple more stats and then we'll analyze this yeah. uh because they piggyback off heralds pretty well Five hundred thousand violent crimes committed are committed with a gun each year and if you say, um, you know, potentially maybe uh, the same offender uses the same gun twice, the number of transactions of purchasing a gun would cut down to like 250000 a year uh, that would be of concern, right? However, average sales volumes of guns by registered dealers is upwards of $20 million a year. So it's a very small percentage that we're talking about in applying a, a, a catch-all rule to take guns away from every citizen, I just don't think one is feasible. Because I'll, I'll and I can get some more stats in a second about the whole black market deal, but I don't think it's feasible. And I just I'm still I'm, you know, borderline libertarian. I would imagine uh, I think uh, where I don't want government to to keep intruding in my everyday life of what I can and can't do. And I think the majority of the, the vast majority of, of American citizens are responsible and can own a gun responsibly. I, I completely agree. So we're going to come to this, and it's kind of fast forwarding, I, I, we're going to come to a, a point where there's going to be a trade-off. There's going to be some infringement of a person's right to carry a firearm against the potential, and it is only potential, saving of lives in events like this. And I want to add a couple of things to, to Harold's points because I, I, I think they're important. The vast majority of, of gun deaths and gun crime, you're right, only 3.5% are carried out with assault weapons. Right. And yet 48% of mass shootings since 2013 have used weapons that would have been banned by the failed 2013 assault weapons ban. So while th only 3.5% of gun deaths are used are using assault weapons, only 50% of them are 50% of these weapons. of these mass shootings or would have been protected, would have been are assault yeah. weapons that would have been banned by legislation. Right. So I think we need to be specific here in what we're trying to stop. If you look at all gun deaths nationwide, 94% of all gun victims have a criminal record. 92% of all gun perpetrators have a criminal record. 
there's very little you're going to be able to do to stop criminals killing other criminals, shooting other criminals with guns in this country. These or people, in, arguably, people that are committing suicide, correct? With suicide, I think there's a there's a slightly different tangent that that okay. I would take a little bit. But let's let's address kind of the 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 scale of gun crime mm-hmm. and whittle it down to the specific things that you might be able to stop. I don't think there's anything you're going to be able to do to stop organized crime, like drug crime, people with you know, organized criminals using guns to kill or, other or, or shoot at other criminals. And that's well over 90% of gun crime is exactly that. The crime we do want to prevent are these tragedies, these mass shootings by people who aren't criminals. But the vast majority of mass shooters do not have a criminal record. 75% of guns used in mass shootings are obtained completely legally. These are things, these are otherwise law-abiding citizens who snap and cr- perpetrate the most horrific of crimes. This is what we can address. So it is, it is only 3.5% of gun crime. 50% of these types of gun crimes can be addressed with assault weapons legislation. So that's, that's one point. Moving on to suicide. Well, hang on. Okay, do you want to touch yeah, that? And then then, wanna, then we can swing back around to suicide. Yeah. Um, I, I, I see that. I see your point. My biggest pushback is, in the in. So we're talking about gun control in general, but sure. in the wake of Las Vegas, this Stephen Paddock guy. I mean, he had what twenty three guns in his in his hotel room. This was incredibly premeditated, and I think it'll help my point that. If this guy wants to get a gun, he's going to find a gun. He's going to he will go to black market. I kn- I've and I can inoculate what you're going to say, but I won't because I I'll, okay. I'll let you I'll let you hit me with that. So but, yeah, so but uh, let me hang on. Forbes yeah. article, March 30th, 2017. The prices for black market AK-47. $600 in Afghanistan, about $1200 in North Mexico right aro- right along the US border. And then when you talk about the dark net, the estimate is about $2,800 to $3,600 for an AK. If you look at the number of AK-47s only in circulation, there are an estimated 200 million today, and a million produced every year. And that's just, I can't even pronounce that, the Kalashnikov AK-47. So the guns are there, and if if you're premeditating an event or a a, a you know a mass shooting like this paddock guy did he's gonna find a gun and he's gonna carry it out so so i, I would challenge that a, a little bit and i think let's make it harder there are gonna be maybe maybe this paddock guy does go and find some underground gun dealer and and find some way to acquire a gun but the harder you make it for the people like him to find a gun the fewer there are going to be. Not everyone is going to be able to go over those hurdles and go through that process of going into the black market. This is a 64-year-old white guy. You know, make it hard for him. He might not be comfortable walking into doing a a deal with an underground black market criminal gun seller. this This guy probably doesn't have a lot of underworld connections. He probably doesn't go and buy drugs on the black market. He probably doesn't frequent the type of neighborhoods where black market gun dealers are going to operate. This is going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult for him to do that, and he may feel very uncomfortable doing it. Very private, very solitary guy. Probably doesn't want to drive into a bad neighborhood and find some 
criminal gun dealer. The fact that he acquired all of his guns legally shows that that was his preferred method of acquiring guns. If you can stop him doing that, if you can say, actually, you know what? You can't buy assault weapons in this country. There's no reason for you to have one. We, you, know, you can't buy one legally. The guns are there, but let's make it hard for people to find them. And it, will, it, might, it won't stop everyone. You're right. But it might stop a few. Yeah, and I, I mean the bump stock is a that's a quick win. I mean this guy just opened fire on those yeah. poor individuals. I mean it's just unbelievable. But you know uh, applying a a major regulation like that and hindering the rights of the you know the ninety nine percent people that own a gun that are responsible gun owners, th- that's a big cost that we're talking about, and that's why I think this issue is so tough. Yeah, it's it's. It would be controversial leg- legislation. It would be strongly opposed by a lot of people with deep wallets and big influences. Um, and it really does depend. The one, the one argument that I can see that genuinely kind of carries water in terms of why an American civilian would need a assault rifle, a, a semi-automatic AR-15. Why would an American citizen need that type of gun? There's no, there's no reason. You, know, you don't hunt elk with that. You don't hunt any type of animal with that type of gun. So I don't see any particular sporting need for that type of weapon. Um, the one argument that I can see that potentially has credibility and veracity is, well, that's the weapon that the police forces and the military are armed with. And if the main role of an armed citizenry is to prevent tyranny, is to be a bulwark against an overstepping of government power and authority, those citizens need to be equivalently armed to the people who would oppress them. And that, that, that is a legitimate argument. What you need to offset then is how likely it is, is the American government and the agencies of that government to oppress you when... Plenty of other countries don't allow their citizens to carry these types of weapons and democracy and freedom still thrive. You know, is is, is the American government is American democracy so weak? Is is the American government so bent towards tyranny that this is actually a requirement for the American population to be armed in this way? Versus the lives that are undoubtedly lost because People can legally, legally buy these these weapons, and you you're never going to save everyone. You're never going to stop every one of these tragedies, but I, you only have to stop a few, and you're saving dozens of lives. I think I think we'll leave it there. Um, it, it appears as though uh, Feinstein's desk already has, or Feinstein's office already has regulation drafted for review. Uh, Cornyn is is open to discussion um so it'll be i think when we recap next week there could be maybe some movement and and we'll see where it goes i'd I'd like to add add one more point that we haven't really touched on and 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 is brought up regularly people say that gun legislation doesn't work it doesn't reduce and and harold opened the conversation with this legislation from 1994 was generally seen to be toothless and, and and didn't really affect um gun deaths i think if you look at the the kind of the meta statistics for countries uh, across the world you have various levels of gun control 
<coughs> you see that gun control broadly does work. And there is a very strong correlation between the level of gun control a country has and the level of gun murder rate in that country. And I'm just going to give you a few stats to ponder for our listeners to go away thinking about. The U.S. has a handgun ownership rate of 29%. 29% of houses have a handgun. The gun murder rate... It's so high. I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah. The gun murder rate in the U.S. is 29.7 people per million per year. Switzerland has the second highest handgun ownership rate in the world of developed of the OECD of developed countries. Of fourteen percent of households own a handgun, they have a murder rate of seven point seven gun murders per million people. Canada, five percent of households have a handgun, five point one murders per million. The UK, which has some of the toughest gun re- registration in the world, has a total murder rate of nine per million so you're saying that it's directly proportional it is fairly it is very closely linked and some gun legislation and i think probably the 1994 legislation will fall into this category is so peripheral that it doesn't have an effect but sweeping enforced legislation to curb gun ownership directly affects the, not just the gun murder rate, but the murder rate in total of countries that are affected. And I'll leave you with one statistic. The total murder rate in the US is 4.8 per 100,000 people. In the UK, it's 0.92. Are Americans really five times as homicidal as British people? Or is it that there's just that many more guns in circulation in the US? I think we could, we could continue that debate. For a while, I, um, I, I you know, yeah, interesting, interesting point, Inter- very interesting points, and in an interesting conversation uh, in total. We're we're butting up against an hour already, and I thought this was really fun. This was a good good conversation. Yeah, it's a serious topic, but uh, um, I think you've covered a, a lot of bases here. And yeah, yeah. Um, as is custom want to thank the men and women serving overseas raise a glass to them for allowing us the freedom of speech to come on this podcast and discuss issues that uh, are somewhat controversial without any repercussion to us and uh you know kudos to them and, and thank you for your service next week as a preview i guess we don't really have a, a preview but um you know we'll we'll see what we want to talk to <laughs> talk about in a week yeah we have a lot of uh good Good, uh, good topics as well as some uh, exciting guest speakers that we're going to be bringing on. So, yeah, I think uh, you you can expect from here on out. We we kind of we wanted the dynamic of the three of us to kind of get natural, and I think uh, you know we're we're getting comfortable talking about stuff with each other, and and now we want to get some outside perspective, and we'll we'll continue to do that. 